Welcome. Hello. Hi. Welcome to the Comedy Half Hour. This is going to be a special show that is just one concept, and it's uh, called Fred's Quarry. Fred's Quarry was like the centerpiece of a show you guys did out in Woodstock, live in front of an audience and live on the radio, like Lake Wobegon kind of thing. You guys stand in front of uh, music stands performing it. Sometimes Tim would go in the back and do sound effects, and you had a, a music guy, Scott May, was doing music. There was a whole bunch of different stuff, but the centerpiece kind of started in the second hour. Who wrote it? I thought you wrote it, right, Jim? No, the actual script, Jim wrote the actual script. Everybody kind of sat around and in a room at one point and threw out ideas, and we all just kept writing down, hey, we'd love to have this in there somewhere, that in there somewhere, but nobody was thrown out like, actual dialogue, right? Don't Jim took all this home. And put, turned it into the script. I wrote the narrative, so like what the narrator was going to say. And, and in uh, my head, what I was hearing when I was writing it, I, I was very Ken Burns Civil War. That what was going on in my head. And Garrison Keeler, that what was in my head when I was writing the narrative. Then in between, we would have these, everyone else wrote those little tiny bits, character bits by themselves. Oh, I, gotcha. I, okay, just, yeah, yeah. I wrote the main narrative. I feel, I mean, it had a duck logic kind of thing, but it was almost, it was really nice. It was nice. It wasn't. It was almost it touching, yeah. frankly. <laughs> it was almost touching, which is very out, outside of our wheelhouse to a certain extent. Yeah, there's was, pathos in there. Yep, that's for sure. There's a lot of touching going on. Also featuring a very good friend of ours, Tom Dorfmeister, who's, who's passed on, who was with us for just a short time for that show. And uh, it'll be nice to hear him again. So I just thought I'd dedicate the entire podcast to that. As a disclaimer, what I have is a recording off the air when it was live on the radio. I went in, fixed what I could, but the first 30 seconds or so, they're muddled, and but that's actually how it was recorded, live in the theater during the performance, and some of it's going to be a little radio-ish. It's not like... <laughs> It's not like that kind of thing. It, it's not going to have full fidelity. What was the message of Fred's Quarry? Mm, the individualist versus the majority. Mm, yeah, there you go. I like it. It's an Anne Rind kind of thing. There we go. No relationship to Larry Rand. Or, or Melon Rind. So, guys out there, enjoy this. It's a bit of a departure, but it's really great. And enjoy. the birds are soon going to be quiet. In a small town that lies near the Illinois-Wisconsin border, committees are being formed, storefronts are getting a fresh coat of paint, and articles are being written in the Fred's Quarry Chronicle about the coming centennial of the town's main point of interest, which since the 1890s has been a lightning rod for the curious and the skeptical, the scientist and the mystic, the tourist and the native. It gave the town its name, and through the ten decades of its existence, in the waxing and waning interest it has generated over the years, it has provided the town with international renown. It is a hole in the ground. 125 feet deep, 300 feet across at its widest, excavated by a single man. It is Fred's Quarry, home of the world's largest man-made canyon. I suppose it is rather curious that a fellow should dedicate his life to digging a canyon. 
I kind of think of it as building one of those Egyptian pyramids, except in reverse. <laughs> if people don't understand that, let them mind their own damn business. Fred, May 1st, 1900. To understand Fred's quarry and the quiet man who spent over 72 years of his life digging the canyon there, you must begin in Arizona, January 12th, 1893. Early that morning, a man is discovered looking out over the Grand Canyon, held in a kind of trance. He's found there by the Wulu Indians, who are a curious story by themselves. We hear from Fred's Quarry historian and town archivist, Leslie Toe. The Wulu Indians were a group of Swedish Lutherans who performed for tourists throughout the West. Originally, there were immigrant farmers from Minnesota and Wisconsin whose farms had gone bust and were desperate for work. They dyed the hair black, wore breech cloths, and worked for Buffalo Bills while West Show. Rodeos, dude ranches, just about anything, really. We hear from the last woo-woo chief, Lars Timpa, from an interview in 1965. We have the name woo-woo because all the time the people are asking what we do for a living. And we say, we are Indians. Then the people, they are asking, Indian Indians? And we say, no, woo-woo Indians. And the name stuck with us. Indians brought the man they found on the canyon's rim to their camp, where they fed him salted cod and tried to sell him cheap souvenirs. The man bought nothing and would not or could not tell them anything, even his name. This is when, in Woo-Woo legend, Chief Gunnar Mikkelsen stood up and said, Look, why don't we use call him Fred? The Woo-Woo's thought that this was a good name, because in woo-woo, Fred means man who stares at Canyon. Or so they said, uh, you must remember the woo-woos made up their culture and customs as they went along. Fred discarded his past and he began a diary that he was to keep the rest of his days. I have seen a vision that I will never forget. What God and nature have worked upon the earth, I will render with the strength of my arms and a good shovel. The woo-woos have named me Fred. I will answer to that from this time on. Fred, January 14th, 1893. The little we know of Fred's beginnings come from his diary. He was from Chicago. He had traveled west to see the sights, and at the time the woo found him, he was 20 years old. Returning to Chicago, he looked outside it for cheap land where he could begin his lifelong project, digging the world's largest man-made canyon. He found what he was seeking for in northern Illinois, in the small village of Illinois a community of around 200 people. Illinois had a church, which was also its school, a bank, the seven-room honeypot hotel and beekeeper cafe, and one brick-lined street. Land was cheap outside of town, so Fred took on odd jobs to work while saving money for his project. He dug holes, mostly, for fence posts, outhouses, root cellars, and ditches. He worked hard, and the townspeople grew to like this quiet man who was often seen trudging around the countryside with a shovel over his shoulder in the early morning hours, working till dusk, and then returning to his rented room above the beekeeper cafe. Patrick, have you seen the nice big hole the Lynn Blooms have in their backyard? It seems like everyone but us has a new pit of some kind in their property, and we have none. How can you expect me to hold my head up in polite society with the yard as featureless as a plate of grass? Oh, Mary, I don't have time to dig a hole for you. 
This is the 1890s, for heaven's sake. It's a larger-than-average forest out there. What about that nice young man, Fred? He digs holes, good ones. And he's a quiet, hard-working boy. Oh, I know, Fred. He's a good boy. Well, go ahead and hire him. Just make sure he doesn't dig something too big. No, dear. Just bigger than the Lindblooms. It was in the Beekeeper Cafe where Fred found the love of his life, Lydia Dangle, a waitress whose father, Boone Dangle, was the mayor of Illinois. For a big girl, she sweats hardly nothing at all. <laughs> Fred, March 3rd, 1897. found himself telling Lydia about his dreams and aspirations. I'm going to dig the world's largest man-made canyon. That's sweet. More coffee? Fred soon saved enough money to buy several acres of land two miles outside of town. And when he wasn't working for someone else, he could be found there, digging into the late hours of the night by the light of a railroad lantern. The townspeople were curious about what he was doing. Chesterton P. Illinois Chronicle. Sam Glick's cow gave birth to a spotted calf this week. The Olufsen's have lost the handle to their water pump. What the hell is Fred digging out there in the middle of the night? Lydia Dangle supplied the answer. Letter to the editor. Dear sir, Fred is digging the world's largest man-made canyon. Isn't that sweet? And don't forget, early bird diners at the Beekeeper Cafe get a free piece of cherry pie this week with the purchase of one of our dinner specials, Lydia Dangle. Soon, people started to show up to watch Fred dig. The numbers were small at first, but soon it became a small crowd. One of the people who watched Fred was a young man from town named Bob. He was amazed at the amount of people who would take time out of their day to watch a man dig a hole. He bought the land adjoining Fred's, and he built bleachers so that he could charge people to watch Fred work. Adding a lemonade and sandwich stand for those who brought nothing with them. Bob thought Fred was a genius, so he had his name legally changed to Just Bob and suggested to Fred that they form a partnership. Fred declined. He said he was working on one man's vision and needed no one's help. But he did offer to sell Bob the loads of dirt he was digging out. Bob agreed at $1 a load, a price that didn't change for the length of their association together. This was also the start of Bob's Hill, the winter and summer playground for thousands. Fred's quarry archivist, Leslie Toe. Sure, people were curious. There are a lot of quarries in that part of the country, but none of them were being dug by a single man with the goal of forming a canyon. Many people thought he was simple. The children used to follow him into town when he was buying supplies and tease him mercilessly. Fred, Fred, rocks in his head, lives with a shovel in an old wood shed. <laughs> I know you children don't mean that. Yes, yes we, we do. do. <laughs> Let up to the editor. If a man can dig a hole and call it a canyon, why should he not spit and call that an ocean? Or go hit his dog and declare that a war. I like Fred as well as the next man, but Lord help me if my daughter were to marry him. Mayor Boone Dangle. In the summer of 1900, Lydia announced her engagement to Fred. She also announced the Beekeeper Cafe was serving fresh dinner rolls with all the soup of the day orders. They were married two years later, 
They took a brief honeymoon to the Grand Canyon, where they spent many silent hours looking out over the rim. Fred introduced Lydia to the Woo-Woo Indians. We, the Woo-Woo Indians, will give you one of our secret names that will be known only to us. That's sweet. Y yeah, they are something wonderful in the naming department. From this time on, we will call you Lydia. In Woo-Woo, that means a woman who marries man who stares at canyons. But Lydia's already my name. Boy, it's catching on, huh? Now we're going to teach you the precipitation dance. Say voo, 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 voo. Voo, 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 voo. Not voo, 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 voo. Are you making fun of the baby speech? The happy couple returned to Illinois. Lydia decided she'd continuing waitressing at the Beekeeper Cafe as the money was as good as could be expected and she'd grown to love the excitement and hurly-burly world of the food service industry. Sorry, sir. We're out of the dinner special. Well, I'll just have the meatloaf then. All right. Since Lydia was making enough money for both of them, Fred turned to working full-time on his canyon. His wife felt she was lucky to have married a man who wanted to do something with his life, even if it was, at that point in time, 20 feet in the ground. Fred continued digging, and over the years, the crowd who came to watch him grew in both size and distance traveled. It was during World War I that people started to throw money into the hole as if it was a wishing well, occasionally hitting Fred as he worked. Some people thought their wish had a better chance of coming true if they actually plunked Fred. So, uh, so he took to wearing a hard hat, and people would then aim at that. It was sometime after the Great War when a reporter, passing through town to cover a story farther north, heard about Fred while getting his car fixed. He went out to see Fred, walking around the pit and talking to him for several hours. The reporter left at dusk, returning to Chicago, where he worked at the American Herald. That night, he wrote an article about the shy man who was digging himself a canyon northwest of Chicago. Hey, knock it off. Extra, extra, read all about it. U.S. declares prohibition. White Sox throw World Series. Man digs hole. It was the start of the Roaring Twenties, and the item in the Herald about Fred's Canyon was picked up by other papers across the country. H.L. Mencken, writing in the Baltimore Sun, leads his editorial with the title, When is a Hole a Canyon? Soon, tourists, celebrities, and reporters were turning up in Illinois, traveling out to the canyon at all hours of the day and night. Fred, always shy, found the crowd annoying, if not frightening. He refused to speak to anyone except once when late one night as he was leaving with a shovel over his shoulder, a big Packard pulled up, drunken laughter spilling out the open window. A small man, dressed in a tuxedo, stumbled out and walked over to Fred. He had an open bottle of champagne, which he held by the neck, his head wobbling slightly. He asked, you Fred? When Fred admitted that he was, the stranger introduced himself as Charles Chaplin. They spent the night sitting on the rim of the pit, their legs dangling, drinking from the magnet of champagne, while Fred told Chaplin about his dream, the woo-woo Indians, and eventually the kind of shovel he liked to use, while the people in the Packard slept. Charlie is a nice fellow. Lydia says he's in the movie business. I should see one of his films when I have time. Fred, September 23rd, 1926. At this time, Bob installed a carousel at Bob's Hill. This was followed by an entire carnival with a Ferris wheel that offered a fine view of the canyon. The carnival did so well that Bob was convinced more than ever of Fred's genius. 
He decided he'd talk to people even less than Fred, which eventually led him to not talking at all. We hear from Bob's son, Bob Jr. Dad thought that by keeping silent, he'd create a certain amount of mystery or charisma like Fred had. He didn't talk to any of his family. He'd just slip a note under your door and something would be written on it like, uh, you know, where's my boots or happy birthday. Uh, how about those cubs, you know? Of course, Illinois benefited from the tourist trade as well. Motels and souvenir shops opened, selling miniature shovels, postcards, bags of gravel supposedly dug by Fred, and a variety of snappy songs on 78 records about the canyon. Illinois, realizing a good thing when it had one, moved to rename itself Fred's Canyon. This was met with loud opposition by Boone Dangle, who remained the town mayor. His daughter's marriage to Fred was a galling pill to swallow, and he hated the idea of his small village becoming a tourist town. I move that our town be officially renamed Fred's Canyon. Objection! On what grounds, Mayor? If you chart a head's look in Webster's Dictionary, you will find that a canyon is a naturally formed valley with steep sides. Now, I emphasize naturally formed. Now, Fred may be digging a pit, or a trench, or a quarry, but no one can dig a canyon. What? No, he's right. I don't know. Uh, Mayor, uh, I understand your feelings, but hey, I'm a businessman, and I'm telling you, this canyon thing is drawing suckers. I mean, people, like flies to the proverbial manure pile. If we rename ourselves Fred's Canyon, I'm thinking letterheads, pendants, Pencils, snow globes, oversized cigars, cheap porcelain figurines, and bright red hand-painted satin pillows, all with, I dropped in at Fred's Canyon, plastered across them. I mean, this could be bigger than Mammoth Caves. I kid you not. Fellow councilmen, I sympathize with Mayor Dangle's feelings on this matter. I am aware, as are we all, that he despises every inch of Fred's guts. Both the upper and lower intestines and the soft connecting tissues as well. <laughs> After all, who is there among us who doesn't hate his son-in-law? Nonetheless, Fred is more than a common laborer. This simple man is an artist who is sculpting the living rock beneath our feet into something that will outlive us all. This gentle and honorable man has dug his way into our hearts and has removed the stony clutter from our souls. Gentlemen, we can make a mint from this moron. Anyone who doesn't see that is a moron as well. Well, Mayor Dangle, let me remind all of you that I am the head of every commission in this town and I have the power and temperament to make anyone's life a business a living hell on earth. Look, how's this? We rename the town Fred's Quarry with the motto, home of the world's largest man-made canyon. We get the business, Fred is honored, sort of, and nobody's tender toes get stepped on. All in favor? Aye. 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 So Illinois became Fred's Quarry, home of the world's largest man-made canyon. Letter to the editor. I think it's sweet that in this great country of ours, somebody can get a town named after themselves, whether they want to or not. 
This month at the Beekeeper Cafe, you get a free jelly roll with any order of our two-egg breakfast special. Prepared any way you want, of course. Lydia. I know I ain't digging a quarry, but it ain't a canyon yet either. So I expect I should be satisfied. Fred, May 19th, 1929. By this time, Fred had two sons, Cliff and Gully. who Fred took care of while he worked. When they were old enough, Fred let them help, but he always did the majority of the work himself. This was also the time that Bob opened his Indian Artifact Museum, his Fossil Museum, and his Mineral Museum, with all the exhibits coming from the loads of material he was hauling out of Fred's canyon. Bob would stand up on the lip of the canyon and drop notes, which fluttered down to the rock at Fred's feet. Fred picked them up and read them when he wasn't busy. But they all said, you're a genius, or some variation on that theme. Fred would crumple them up and throw them on the loads of rock to be hauled out. When the Great Depression came, Fred actually found more money in the pit than ever, which Lydia attributed to the fact that there were a lot of people desperate for a change of luck. When people started to show up in Fred's quarry to be cured, the high-water mark of its popularity was reached. Uh, there was this old man, he come crawling up to Fred. He says, uh, I come to be healed, brother. Fred looks down at him and says, well, you know, it's just a hole. So the man said, oh, he done crawled away. <laughs> there were a lot like that. Movie Tell News, bringing you the news from around the world. Dateline, Fred's Quarry, Illinois. A parade of personalities and celebrities line up to catch a glimpse of the man with the farmer's tan and plenty of time to dig a quarry. Whoops, I mean canyon. There's the Sultan of Swat himself, Babe Ruth, pointing to the top of Bob's Hill. Sorry, Bambino, not even one of your prodigious clouts could carry that far. And isn't that Al Capone measuring a part of the canyon? Perhaps a new summer home for some pal Al? And wherever Scarface goes, you know that Jin won't be far behind. And this time, on the rocks. There's Carol Lombard with Clark Gable. Greta Garbo tosses a rock over the edge. Heads up, Fred. This little lady has quite an arm. Marlena Dietrich and Gary Cooper compare penny tosses, while Fred's wife Lydia makes potato salad for crazy men Bob Hope and the Mox Brothers. Yes, the celebrities can't stay away from the canyon companion of Fred's quarry. Movie Tone News marches on. In 1940, Fred was 67 years old. Due to constant exercise and his simple diet, he was very healthy. By the start of the Second World War, the flood of tourists to Fred's Quarry had slowed to a trickle. Leslie Toe. During the war, people couldn't travel due to rationing and travel restrictions. And the story of a man digging the world's largest man-made cannon was linked in people's minds to hole-sitting, barnstormers, and bootleg gin. It was connected to an era that had passed away. All Fred cared about was whether he could recapture the feeling he had long ago when the woo-woos found him gazing over the largest canyon on this earth. Hey, uh, did the narrator say I was Fred's Quarry's uh, historian and town archivist? No. In 1943, Tommy Dorsey's band plays at Bob's Hill Pavilion for a war bond drive. Three months later, Fred's wife Lydia dies of a heart attack during the lunch rush at the Beekeeper Cafe during the free choice of breakfast with Blue Pig special promotion. 
I've been eating at the Beekeeper Cafe every day for 36 years. I was always going in wanting to order a grilled cheese, but I always ended up with a special. <laughs> Liddy was a great little salesman. God, she knew her potatoes. She taught me everything I know. A real waitress's waitress. She kept the coffee cups filled, served the food hot, wiped the tables clean, and she always got 15%. A real saint. Lydia is gone. I had always hoped she would outlive me, but then waitressing is brutal. Fred, April 3rd, 1943. Fred buried the only person who understood his dream in a grotto he built in the limestone walls of the canyon. Several days later, a note fluttered down from Bob. In it, he suggested that a picture postcard of Lydia's grotto would sell like hotcakes. From that day on, Fred never spoke to Bob or acknowledge his existence. The war ended. A few years later, Hollywood director Frank Capra arrives into town and visits with Fred. He speaks of making a film of Fred's life starring Jimmy Stewart. Capra has a hard time selling the idea of a man digging a hole to Warner Brothers as a major motion picture, and nothing comes of it, save this short piece of screen test footage, which turns up every now and then. Bob, don't you know me? It's Fred, Bob, Fred. Hey, hey, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding, Bob, isn't that wonderful? And, and what's this in my pocket? Oh, Zuzu's pebbles, look at them. Aren't they beautiful, Bob, aren't they? I haven't got rocks in my head. Mayor Dangle does. I love you, Bob, you old note-writing coot. In the years following the war, interest died in Fred's Canyon. Bob's Hill, however, was starting to hit stride. In 1955, Bob opened a ski lodge with a revolving restaurant on the hill's crest called Bob's Knob. For the summer months, he opened a miniature golf course and a go-kart track. Bob's Hill becomes the focus of Fred's quarry. The canyon is a sidelight, a curious anecdote that can be seen from the windows of the revolving restaurant or viewed in the background of the Bob's Hill Viewmaster series. In 1960, Fred is 87 years old. His work in the canyon consists of filling his pockets full of pebbles, trudging out to the rim, and emptying his pockets on the ground. He sometimes walks around the canyon floor, tapping a rock here, pushing a pebble there, correcting the canyon to a picture he holds in his mind's eye. Some people in Fred's quarry think changing the name of the town to Bob's Hill might be a good idea. But this meets resistance. Fred's quarry historian and town archivist, Leslie Toe. Fred at worst was considered a lovable eccentric. Bob at best was considered an egg-sucking weasel. There aren't a lot of towns that will name themselves after an egg-sucking weasel. Case closed. On a spring day in 1965, Fred stops digging for a moment and removes his hard hat to wipe the sweat from his brow. At that same moment, a half dollar is tossed from the top of Bob's Hill into the canyon for luck by a Milwaukee housewife. It strikes the top of Fred's aged head, and he dies instantly. Fred is buried next to his wife in the grotto he built in the canyon wall. The notice of his death is picked up by newspapers and television newscasts across the country. And finally, this item from Illinois. Fred is dead. The quiet visionary who spent a lifetime sculpting a pit into the earth, world's largest man-made canyon, has passed on. 
This eccentric with dirty hands and perhaps a pea-sized brain engaged the imagination of a generation in earlier and perhaps simpler times. Adios, old friend. This is Walter Cronkite saying may all your news be good news. Good night. The reports of Fred's death sparked a new interest in his canyon. Old newspaper and magazine articles are republished, and H.L. Mencken's editorial, When is a Whole a Canyon, is reprinted in Esquire. All the publicity generated a new interest in Fred among the younger generation. In death, Fred acquired a spiritual mantle he would have disdained in life. This transformation from simpleton to guru has always been hard to explain. Historian and archivist Leslie Toe. Well, how the hell should I know? Nonetheless, for one amazing summer in 1968, Fred's quarry is engulfed in flower children. Squatters invade the canyon, setting up the Rock Simple Commune. And on the 4th of July, an anti-war rally is staged in the commune. Make holes, not war! Make holes, not war! Brothers and sisters, I'd like to bring to the stage a man who's been the leading war anti-war activist. I'm tripping, sorry. <laughs> in this part of the county for many years. Ladies and gentlemen, Steamboat George McGonagall! Here's a song that I think Fred would have liked, but maybe would have been a little bothered by the last line. Here's a little story about a place named Fred's Quarry, where a guy got hit in the head, and he ended up dead. Well, his name was Fred, he had rocks in his head, and he dug in the bed till then. Now, here's a story with a second verse again. All right, Fred, Fred, now he's dead. He got hit with a rock in the head. That's what happens when you don't listen to what your mother tells you. The people of Fred's Quarry were surprised, angered, and confused about what was happening in their town. Seeing all those hippies down at the canyon today sure was a surprise. I'll say it really made me angry. The whole thing's got me kind of confused. When it seemed like a confrontation was inevitable between the Rock Simple Commune and the authorities, nature intervened in the form of a driving rainstorm. For 24 hours, it rained in flat, heavy sheets of water that flooded the canyon to 50 feet and caused a mudslide on Bob's Hill that had surprised diners at Bob's Knob revolving down the hillside onto the highway. No one was killed, but it took a lot of fire out of everybody. Eventually, the rainwater leached out of the canyon and the hippies departed to another rendezvous with history at a different Woodstock, although I heard it rained there too. Dennis Hopper arrived in the aftermath of the rainstorm, and there was once again talk of doing a film about Fred and his canyon. Man, I tell you, you don't know, man. He's like a genius, man. He's a poet, okay? And people don't understand him. They said, hey, man, he's crazy. Stay away from him. You know, and all they ever thought about was like, he's a little dot down there, man. But I'm telling you, he was beyond it. I mean, digging like layers away, man. I tell you, man, I mean, he was like a big pill or something. Production on the film was stopped when the Woo Woo Indians uh, protested the use of real Indians in the role of their grandparents. 
We would like everyone in the academy to know that we can be engaged for birthday parties, smokers, and rodeos. You betcha. Yes, the film was never produced. The canyon became quiet again. Bob's Knob was replaced by Bob's Hill Holiday Inn. Bob Jr. is presented with a plaque from the local Kiwanis Club that honors Bob's Hill as the second highest tourist attraction in the area next to Wisconsin Dells or Alpine Valley when the dead are playing. In Fred's will, the canyon is left to the town in a trust under the condition that it never be filled or altered. It becomes a campground for Boy Scouts and a field trip for junior high students. In the 80s, Bob's Mineral Museum becomes a healing crystal store. An article appears in a magazine that says a man by himself could never have dug the canyon and that it was obviously the work of aliens. The Quarry Day Parade, stopped in the late 40s, is renewed and here we are today. In 11 months, it will be 100 years since Fred was found staring out over the Grand Canyon. There is still a mystery about that hole in the ground that's not answered in Fred's quarry or is solved by any communication he had with his friends. Did he ever accomplish his goal? Could he stand above his creation in the creeping light of dawn and feel that powerful itch dance down his spine as it did that morning in 1993? We don't know, and perhaps we never will. I suppose it is rather curious how a fellow should dedicate his life to digging a canyon. I kind of think of it as building one of those Egyptian pyramids, except in reverse. People don't understand that, but they mind their own damn business. Fred. Thank you very much. Fred's Quarry. Coming to you on Star 105.5 WZSR Woodstock Crystal Lake McHenry and Fred's Quarry. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. The Duck Logic Comedy Half Hour Show number 21. The Fred's Quarry Special. Featuring in alphabetical order Tom Dorfmeister, David Dunlosky, Ann Mitchka, James F. Russell, and Tim Thomas. Music by Scott May. Join us next time, won't you? If you like what you heard, subscribe to the Comedy Half Hour and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and I'm pretty sure Instagram. Our website is ducklogiccomedy.com, obviously, and our cable show is Cableville USA on YouTube. Portions of this show were previously broadcast on the radio back in the day under the copyright of Duck Logic Limited and the licenses of Star 105.5 WZSR in Woodstock, Illinois. And if you don't understand that, let them mind their own damn business.